If you could open your Bibles, ready to read from John 4, that would be fantastic. Um, For those with church Bibles, that is page 1066. Can't forget that one. Um, And for large print Bibles, it's 1652. That's John chapter 4. In tonight's passage, we get the opportunity to observe an unlikely encounter between a Jewish rabbi and a Samaritan woman. Last year, at the end of May, Tim did two great talks on this passage, which I highly recommend that you check out on the website in the week. Now, you may be thinking, if Tim's already covered this passage, why on earth are we looking at it again? Well, the aim of tonight isn't to repeat what Tim said last year, although I may pinch some observations, Tim, so thank you in advance. Um, My aim, rather, is to look at this passage from a different angle and to focus our attention more on the Samaritan woman and what happened as a result of her encounter with Jesus. So let's read from John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42, and that's titled Jesus and the woman at the well. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than a father, Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go and get your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you have now, the man you now have, is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain 
nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who, draw, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one soap, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from, the town, from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. This is God's word. The title of tonight's sermon is The Power of Invitation. So let's set the scene. It's noon. It's the hottest part of the day. Jesus and his disciples have been traveling from the Judean countryside in the south to get to their next destination, which is Galilee in the north. Now, in order to get to where they want to go, they need to travel through Samaria or take a huge diversion. Normally, for Jews, this would be a no-brainer travel as the crow flies. But for Jews at this time, Samaria was a place to be avoided when possible because it was full of Samarians, or Samaritans even. As we can see in John 4, traveling through Samaria was no problem for Jesus. In verse 6, Jesus is said to be tired and no doubt thirsty. So he's chosen to find rest next to a well described as Jacob's well near the town of Sychar. He is alone, a 
as his disciples have gone into town to find him some lunch. In verse 7, a character enters the scene as a woman approaches the well to draw water. Like Jesus, the woman is also alone, but for very different reasons. In the culture of that time, it would have been highly unusual to see a woman alone drawing water at a well. The standard practice was for women to go to the well to draw water in groups. Firstly, this provided safety in numbers, as it was a risky thing to go out and do. But it also meant that women, the women would be able to work together as a team and share that workload, as lugging heavy jars of water from deep wells was hard graft. Another reason it was highly unusual to see a woman alone was down to the time of day. In verse 6, we read that it was noon, the hottest time of the day. Now, given that drawing water was hard work, women usually only ever drew water from the well in the cool of the day. Coming to the well at this time indicates that the woman wasn't welcome to draw water with the other women who had already been in the cool of the day. Which tells us for one reason or another that she'd been marginalized from community life. The first part of this reading, verses um, 7 to 27, the focus is on Jesus' interaction with the woman. As the conversation unfolds, we start to understand a bit more about why the woman had become an outcast amongst her own people. In verses 17 to 18, we read that it was down to a history of broken relationships as well as a current living status. Even in Samaritan culture, she was seen as a woman of ill repute. But notice that this doesn't put Jesus off from spending the time of day to engage with her. The dialogue between Jesus and the woman reaches a climax in verse 26 when Jesus makes the audacious claim of being a Messiah, of being the Messiah. In this cliffhanger moment, we're waiting to see a response from the Samaritan woman. Will she fall down at Jesus' feet in worship? Will she politely change the subject or will she say, thanks but no thanks? What is she going to do? In this tension-filled moment of decision, we're left hanging as the moment is rudely interrupted by the arrival of the disciples who've arrived back from the town with the food that they went for way back in verse 8. In verse 27 we can see that the disciples' reaction to Jesus chatting with the Samaritan woman is one of surprise, which plays out in awkward silence. We know from the author what they're thinking. We know from the author what they're thinking. They're thinking, what the heck does she want? And why on earth is Jesus talking to this woman? There's no one dares to verbalize their questions. Today as we read this, we can read it as the disciples have been quite cold. Um, but at the time, their reaction would have been seen to be quite normal. Jewish culture saw women as second-class citizens. Um, you just didn't give them the time of day. There's a quote Tim said, I can't remember now, um, that kind of, you just didn't give 
women that time of day. Um, of course, that has changed now. On top of this, there was cultural tensions that existed between Jews and Samaritans, which further explained their, beha- their behavior towards the woman. So these two factors made Jesus' choice to engage with the Samaritan woman all the more puzzling for the disciples. So far, the scene is set at the well. Everything takes place at the well. It's only when the disciples arrive back and disturb this interaction between Jesus and the woman that the woman scarpers off and makes her way off the scene, away from the well. In verse 28 to 30, the author helpfully chooses to focus the camera lens on the woman as she makes her way back to the town. But before she does, we read in verse 28 that she leaves her water jar. We don't actually know the reason why the woman leaves the water jar. Maybe she was so eager to escape the awkward atmosphere created by the arrival of the disciples that she rushes off and forgets the water jar. She forgets the reason she even came. Or maybe she left it on purpose so Jesus could eventually get that drink that he asked for back in verse 7. Another reason is that she could have left it because she was always planning on coming back to the well and finally responding to Jesus' claim of being Messiah. Or maybe she was so eager to go and tell a community about the man that she just talked to that she didn't want to be slowed down by lugging this heavy jug of water, so she left it at the well. She could have also been like me and really forgetful. We don't know the actual reason why she left the jar. But one thing we can say for sure is that she seemed very eager to get back to her town. In verse 29, we read, In verse 29, we read, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? When she arrives back, the woman shares about her encounter with Jesus to her town. But notice that she doesn't just stop at sharing her experience. But she says two words, two simple words, as she invites her neighbors to find out for themselves. Come, see. After speaking, with the woman, after speaking with Jesus, the woman's instincts tell her to go and tell others about what's happened and invite them to find out for themselves. And what we read here in John 4 isn't an isolated incident. If we go back a few chapters to the chapters that Tracy read to us earlier about the calling of the first disciples, in verse 41, after encountering Jesus, we read that the first thing Andrew did was go and find his brother, Simon, who later became Peter, and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. In the following verses, we read about Philip's response to his encounter with Jesus. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, were from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law 
and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see. Like Andrew and the Samaritan woman, the first thing Philip does after his encounter with Jesus was go and find his mate, Nathaniel, to tell him what had happened. The response from Nathaniel was a bit more cynical, as we can see, um, to the one of Peter's or the Samaritans. But rather than getting bogged down by this cynicism or discouraged, Philip simply invites him to come and see for himself. The stories from John 1 and the, chap- and the story in chapter 4 share two things in common. Firstly, it all begins with a life-changing encounter with Jesus. True transformation can only ever come when we encounter Jesus firsthand for ourselves. But when this happens, it doesn't stop there. The natural, there is a response. The natural response is to go and find someone and share that experience and invite them to experience that experience for themselves. In his commentary on John, William Barclay says that no discovery is complete until the desire to share it fills our hearts and we cannot communicate Christ to others until we have discovered it for ourselves. First to find and then to tell are the two great steps of the Christian faith. As I reflect on how the Samaritan woman responded to Jesus, I started to think about how I naturally respond to when I discover good news. So whether it's discovering a new series on Netflix, a restaurant that serves amazing food, or sharing about an amazing performance from my football team, which I admit is becoming less frequent, (laughs) the natural response is invariably to find anyone who will listen and to share this good news with them. I invite them to experience it for themselves. Can anyone in the room relate to that? You see, I think the reason for this is we want the people we care about to experience the benefits for themselves firsthand, just like we have. We want to share that enjoyment. It's instinctive. It's the natural thing to do. And it's probably where the saying, good news travels fast, comes from. Because in our eagerness, we go out and share it, don't we? To anyone who will listen. People like, shut up, Gareth, about Netflix. Yeah, I'll keep talking. But if we think about how we respond to what Jesus has done in our lives, which is far more exciting and beneficial than any series on Netflix do we still respond with the same enthusiasm as the Samaritan woman? Are we as enthusiastic about finding and inviting our friends, neighbours, colleagues to come and see Jesus for themselves as we are about promoting the latest series on Netflix? Or, if we're being honest with ourselves, do we find inviting those around us to come and see Jesus a bit more of a struggle? Last year, there was a piece of research carried out 
in the UK called Talking Jesus. And one of the things that they wanted to discover was how do Christians feel about sharing their faith with their non-Christian mates. And from this research, there's some really positive findings. Um, and I recommend you check it out. It's online. I'm talking Jesus. Um, but the research also highlighted that we don't find it that easy to share this good news. So from the research, we found out just over a third of practicing Christians are looking for opportunities to share about the good news of Jesus. One in five practicing Christians said they don't feel comfortable to talk to non-Christians about Jesus. Over half of us feel that others are better suited. We kind of leave it to the extroverts, the evangelists, those people. They'll do a better job than me. I'll stay in my lane. And just under a quarter don't feel confident inviting non-practicing Christians to the events, courses, and services that we put on. So despite being the most natural response, inviting our friends to come and see Jesus isn't always an easy thing to do. In his book, Creating a Culture of Invitation in Your Church, Michael Harvey says, Becoming invitational means undoubted rejection, humiliation, embarrassment, and pain. It's not selling it, is it? Um, the fear of laughter of friends, neighbours and work colleagues stops many an activity. To forego popularity and stay on course despite the derision is a matter of grit and determination. Rico Tice, another evangelist, he says that we, in order to share faith with our friends, it requires us to cross this threshold, this pain line. Um, and that's, that's so true, isn't it? So what happens as a result of the woman's invitation in verse 29? In the following verse, we read, in verse, in, in verse 30, we read, they, that is a bunch of Samaritan people, came out of the town and made their way towards him, which is Jesus. Whilst the woman returned back to the town, Jesus and his disciples are still at the well. Verses 31 to 38 focus on their interaction, on Jesus' interaction with the disciples. But for the purpose of tonight's talk and what we're focusing on, we're going to pop that on the shelf. And like I said, if you want to listen about that interaction, check out Tim's talks. <clears throat> what we know, um, we know from verse 39 that some of the Samaritans believed because of the woman's testimony. But I wouldn't be surprised if others came along out of intrigue to see what the fuss was all about. Others may have been sceptical and gone, yeah, it's that weird woman that goes and draws water alone. But still others may have been hopeful to find out if what she was saying was really true. The truth is, when we invite our friends, we may get those same responses. They may come out of skepticism. They may come out of, oh, what is he on? It doesn't matter as long as they come along. So when the Samaritans arrived to Jesus in verse 39, they persuaded Jesus and his disciples to put their travel schedule on hold and stay with them for a couple of days. 
Verses 41 to 42 show us that as a result of this, many more became believers, not just because of the woman's testimony, but because they heard and encountered Jesus for themselves. The three examples that we've looked at this evening all went on to have a positive outcome in that the invitees accepted the invitation. But we know in life, there's no guarantee this will always be the case. Just a couple of chapters on, as we get to John 6, we hear a story about Jesus. Jesus himself experiences rejection when he invites his followers to eat his body and drink his blood. Now we know Jesus wasn't talking literally. But as a result of his teaching and his hard teaching, many declined his invitation and stopped following him that day. So hearing that even Jesus doesn't always get the outcome that he hopes for, surely that gives us comfort, doesn't it? If Jesus can face that rejection, surely we can. We're in good company. As the quote on the screen shows, if we're going to be come and see people, there'll be times when we don't get the response we hope for. Andrew, Philip, and the Samaritan woman all open themselves up to the possibility of facing rejection and ridicule. But they took a chance. Now, despite, you're probably thinking it's easy for me, despite my job title, my job title is Mission and Evangelism Enabler. Um, And despite that, I still find it really hard inviting people to come and see. Before, you know, potentially offering an invite, I catastrophize and play out the worst case scenarios. What if my invite is rejected? What if I'm perceived as weird? What if I damage the future of the friendship? I just saw. What if I invite them to an event and someone does or says something weird? What if there's flag waving? What if, what if, what if? The thing is that in all the catastrophizing about the various what ifs, we can use it to a point, all the various what ifs can be used to a point to stop looking for opportunities to invite people altogether. But in the middle of this, we forget to explore one very important what if. What if they say yes? What if God's plan all along is to use you as the means by which one of our friends come to eventually know and follow the living Savior? Surely that's a risk worth taking. To refer back to the Talking Jesus research, in 2005, when the research was originally carried out, it revealed that one in five of our non-Christian friends said that they are open to know more about Jesus. That's 20%. It was 21% actually, but they're open to know more about Jesus. Seven years later, and a pandemic later, that number is now one in three. One in three of our friends are open to an encounter with Jesus. Now we can look at media and the perception that the media portray, and we can think this situation is dreadful, can't we? No one wants to know about God. God is irrelevant. It's a thing of the past. It's kind of, it'll die out. But when you read that, 
That's not the media's perception. That is what people are actually saying on the floor. This is research that was carried out in Britain across 4,000 people. I hope that gives you courage. I hope that encourages you to look at the landscape a bit differently. One in three of our friends are open to an encounter with Jesus. We have friends out there who are open and waiting for an invitation. But how can they ever do this? How can they ever find Jesus unless they're invited to come and see for themselves? In Romans 10, 14 to 15, Paul writes to the church in Rome. He says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. There's a lot of feet in this room. Could it be that we have friends, colleagues, family, neighbours who are waiting for us to invite them to come and see? Imagine if the Samaritan woman just returns to her town, kept her encounter with Jesus quietly to herself. She was already marginalized from the village. It would have made sense to do that, keep a low profile. Would that town have ever received salvation? Imagine if Philip hadn't invited his cynical friend, Nathaniel, to come and see. Would Nathaniel have ever been named as one of the 12 disciples? Imagine if Andrew didn't rush home to invite his brother, Simon Peter. Would he have ever gone on to preach to thousands gathered at Pentecost years later? The truth is we don't know, but they did. Imagine if we never invite those in our workplace, in our schools, our streets, our families. Will they ever come to encounter Jesus for themselves? Inviting people to come and see is one of the most simple yet profound gifts we can ever give. Just have a reflection now and think about how you came to faith. See, I bet there's people in this room tonight because at some point, at some, in some time, you or your parents or your grandparents were invited to come and see. Imagine if that person who gave the invitation opted for the easy life and never bothered to offer that initial invite. Thank God that they did. If we just uh, have a moment and I'll pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for these stories that we, we can read in the Bible to just encourage us, inspire us, and, uh, and convict us as well, Lord. Um, I just want to say sorry for the times where I and we 
have opted for the easy life, when we've opted out the invitation because of, of fear, of apathy. Lord Jesus, give us a vision of what it means to be your people, to become and see people in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our universities, in our retirement homes and in the clubs and things that we partake in Monday to Saturday. Lord, send us out with a new vision of what it means to be, to be your people. Help us to be people just to offer that invitation to come and see, to come and explore what's the worst that can happen. You don't like it, that's fine. So Lord, just give us courage. Encourage us, Lord, for your glory and for your kingdom. Help us to to show, to be the beautiful feet of bringing good news to those. For your glory, Lord. Amen. So, in the next few minutes, um, what I want to do is just play a song, and on the screen, there's a few um, questions for reflection. So, as the song plays, if you could just um, listen to that, just think about that, and if God talks to you with that. So, if we could just play that.
going to have our final song now um, that last line tell the world of the treasure you found we're going to sing um, are you weary come to Jesus
Lord, help us as we go out this week. Thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you that you are a God who has invited us first. Help us to go and invite others for your glory, for your kingdom. Amen.